promulgating doctrines that have have essentially said under the quote unquote precautionary principle we will let the government violate rights without justification without any evidentiary justification yeah. as long as there is yeah. fear that will substitute for fact if the court allows Hello, everyone, and welcome to Freedom Feature. And I'm your host, Barry Bussey. With me today, I have two constitutional lawyers uh, who are licking their wounds a little bit right now because the Supreme Court of Canada has denied the appeal in their very important cases dealing with religious freedom and other issues such as freedom of association and so on. And uh, you may have already watched part one. And if you haven't, I encourage you to go back there and make sure that you uh, get the con context for our continued conversation today. Gentlemen, thank you so very much for being with us. Thanks for having us. Thanks for having us, Barry. Well, okay, Marty, we had from you last time uh, what you saw as unreasonableness in your case. And Hatem, I wonder if you could tell us now about your case and where you see the unreasonableness uh, that was going on with respect to the government decisions. Absolutely. So uh, here in Ontario, the way the the gathering restrictions uh, on religious gatherings were structured is there were indoor and outdoor restrictions, and they had different limits. Uh, though, though sometimes they they aligned and they were they were both reduced to ten people. But so so we challenged both of those, and there were slightly different issues at play when it came to outdoor gatherings. The evidence that came out in this case was that out, it was essentially that outdoor gatherings are safe. So all of the witnesses that we put forward support, supported that. Uh, but even the government's own expert, uh, infectious disease expert, agreed with us that outdoor gatherings are generally safe, that uh, they're safe even if there's 10,000 cases a day in the community. Uh, he. He, he even agreed that outdoor gathering limits have no public health justification because they would drive people to uh, have clandestine indoor gatherings versus just letting people gather outdoors, which would be preferable from a public health perspective. Uh, even uh, the other uh, government expert witnesses didn't have anything much, much better to say. They, they were a little less agreeable, but uh, the, the height of the evidence on outdoor gatherings was that the risk is not zero that uh, there is some there's there some risk it, it, but it wasn't nothing but it, it didn't get any stronger than that and so yeah. you know from our perspective the, the case on outdoor gathering restrictions being completely unjustified was a strong one uh but then when we uh we turn our attention to the indoor gathering limits there were also uh inconsistencies in the way that the the government uh, applied it so uh one of our, our clients, the Tr Trinity Bible Chapel, has a church with a, uh, a fire code capacity of 900 people. So it, it's a huge building. And at times, the church was under a 10-person limit for gatherings. Uh, and whereas at similar times, uh, real uh, retail stores had a percentage limit. So depending on what the, the retail store's uh, size and fire capacity was, it was some some percentage of that, 15, 30, 50%. Um, and, and so there was an inconsistency here where 
this utter, you know, this massive church building was restricted to having only 10 people, uh, whereas uh, retail stores could operate just at a reduced capacity. And uh, there was evidence that came out in our case that while, yes, uh, a church is different in terms of uh, contagion risk uh, when compared to shoppers at retail stores, uh, the government's expert agreed that compared to employees of retail stores, the risks are actually uh, comparable uh, because in mm. uh, a church, you have people gathering for extended periods of time. They're talking with each other. They're socializing. Uh, and at work, uh, if you're a retail worker, you're there for uh, extended periods of time. You're talking to large numbers of people. Um, you know, there's no limits on the way that uh, retail employees could have interacted with each other. And so the the comparison is there. And yet uh, there was this disparity in how the government was treating both groups. And that disparity becomes all the more unreasonable when you consider the fact that one of these uh, activities is constitutionally protected and the other isn't. Um, and in addition to that, um, one of the, the more striking, uh, inconsistencies and inexplainable, uh, inexplicable, uh, elements of the government policy was that there were these, uh, gathering restrictions that at times were quite strict. Like I said, uh, even 10 people gathering outdoors or just a limit on, on gathering outdoors. And yet, um, people might recall that, uh, back in, uh, 2020, I believe it was, uh, there was a, a Muslim family that unfortunately was, was attacked with a van in London, Ontario, and there was a vigil that was going to be held as a result. Mm -hmm. uh, but this vigil would have been uh, contrary to the gathering restrictions that were in place. And so the government m modified the gathering restrictions to explicitly include an exemption for this specific gathering identified as a vigil being held at a certain place in London, Ontario. And so, you know, what's so strange about this is that generally we consider laws are supposed okay. to be these neutral things that just apply to everyone. They set out some sort of standards that we all have to follow. And yet this was a, an explicit case where even though the government was saying that gatherings were, were dangerous and that they were a risk and that they would overwhelm the, the public health care system, uh, that was essentially just being... Uh, ignored essentially from the government's perspective for this very specific case. Mm. So it, it, it's an instance where there are certain gatherings that the government was willing to tolerate and others that they simply weren't. And I, I think that's why the average Canadian looks at this situation and says, there is something amiss here. It, you know, we, we use the term gaslighting, the idea that, well, what you see is not what you really see, people are trying to tell us. And, and, and one cannot help but think that there is the failure of the courts to turn their mind to this concept of unreasonableness uh, and to, again, defer uh, to government officials, to me is bringing, in many ways, and, and I hate to use this, but it's, it's a term we, we as lawyers will often hear courts make reference to other lawyers, academics and so on. But this concept of the idea of bringing justice into disrepute, there, there is this. Is, is that too strong of a, of a word to use in this context? Am I being uh, unreasonable here? Well, Barry, I think what you're expressing is the feelings of many Canadians, including uh, many of our clients, 
who have seen the unreasonableness of these restrictions. You have to intentionally close your eyes to the facts in order to see that these things would be reasonable. Uh, you have to ignore so much of the data, so much of the reality that was going on. And, and the reality is, is that Canadians expect the courts, and rightly so, to uphold their constitutional freedoms. That is the job yeah. of the courts. Under Section 24 and Section 52, uh, our courts in Canada are tasked with making sure that the government's conduct does not transgress the constitutional rights and freedoms of Canadians without reasonableness and demonstrable justification that one would expect in a free and democratic society. And that mm. duty has, in my view, not been fulfilled in many of these cases. Now, I should, you know, inform your listeners that these are, you know, two of approximately 200 cases that the Justice Center Litigation Network is working on right now. Uh, I, including, for example, another challenge in Ontario to the stay-at-home order. That case just went mm. to court in July, and uh, you might recall Ontario issued an order that essentially put 13 million people on house arrest. They could only leave for, I believe mm -hmm. it was 21 or 27 government-approved purposes. And guess what was not a government-approved purpose? Going out to protest mm -hmm. the government's restriction on your liberties. That case has now gone to a court hearing. We yeah. had expert testimony, not only from public health officials and from infectious disease specialists, but also from uh, indiv an individual who has unique specialty in, a in addressing the societal harm of lockdown measures, uh, both through the psychological, the, the sociological, uh, the economic harm, and the lasting impact that ha that has on the well-being of people in society. That evidence has been brought to court. That, that court hearing went well. Again, it's very important, I think, for us to continue to push these issues through the legal system, because the absurdities are truly piling up and they cannot be ignored mm. forever the facts are on our side the the principles of our constitution must be defended and we cannot let uh, a simple denial of leave get us down or keep us from continuing to advocate for the courts to take up their mantle of responsibility and rather than what i've heard far too many judges say including the chief justice of canada rather than seek to uphold and defend the institutions of Canada, seek to uphold and defend Canadians' rights and freedoms. That is the job of the courts. If institutions need mm. to be corrected, let the chips fall where the facts and the law dictate. But this view that, that seems to be motivating doctrines that have have essentially said under the quote-unquote precautionary principle we will let the government violate rights without justification without any evidentiary justification yeah. as long as there is yeah. fear that will sa substitute for fact if the court allows that is not the kind mm. of principle that the signers of the charter of rights and freedoms the provincial premier such as uh premier Pre peckford 
they did not sign mm-hmm. on to a document that could be interpreted to take fear over fact. They signed on to a document that would uphold what they were uh, enshrining as a free and democratic society in Canada. We need courts to take that mantle. And I, I do believe, again, the absurdities will pile up and the courts will have to step in and once again assert the Canadians' rights and freedoms against government and their unreasonable overreaches. Otherwise, those unreasonable overreaches will not be checked and they might continue uh, without abatement in future circumstances, which may or may not look like the past. Right. And I think those are excellent points, Marty. And and you, you raise uh, uh, Premier Brian Peckford. I have uh, spoken with him at Atlanta different times and he's he makes mention as uh, he remembers and as he has experienced and his he's been very vocal against the, uh, the courts and the government and and the way that people's rights have been trampled upon during the pandemic and and he makes reference quite often to a couple of things one is the 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 supremacy of god and the rule of law clause you know uh, you know whereas canada was founded upon the principle uh, upon the supremacy of god and the rule of law and he said these were guiding principles that, as a signer of the charter, were to be used as a lens through which uh, government would be responsible for. So when we think of, you know, the courts have said that the supremacy of God uh, clause really has very little meaning. Uh, some scholars, uh, such as uh, Bruce Ryder at um, uh, at uh, law school, uh, Osgood Law. Osgood Hall Law School in Toronto uh, makes mention that, you know, the supremacy of God and as a minimum ought to be read as have the law be humble, recognizing uh, that there are, are uh, philosophical principles out there that we need to be keeping in mind um, uh, with respect to the law, but also the rule of law. And when, when the courts are constantly deferring to government, that to me is violating the rule of law principle. There should be some really strict understanding, uh, protections made uh, when we have government make government officials making decisions that are affecting so many people's uh, lives in such a dramatic way. And I mean, we all have stories of tragedies that have occurred during the pandemic. That um, uh, you know, people who've lost their um, their businesses um, uh, because of government policies and all the rest of it. And some of them, uh, unfortunately, uh, took very drastic measures, uh, including some that were told to me where some people actually uh, ended their lives because they lost everything. And, and I mean, that's a reality that we we need to recognize. And so, um, so it becomes extremely important, I think, for us to learn the lessons. And I appreciate what you say, Marty, about the importance of of keeping on, keeping on. In other words, uh, uh, keep bringing these cases. And we need, uh, like right now, and and for the public at large who are watching this, you may be tired of uh, groups like JCCF and others, including ours at First Freedoms, asking for funds to, to keep this debate and discussion going. But, you know, Organizations like JCCF need to have the support of the public to keep 
um, government accountable and to keep the, before the courts these issues. And so it's extremely important that uh, that funding uh, be continued and folks not lose just because you think right now, okay, um, you know, restrictions are released and so on. But the principles here that are at stake are are extremely important and will go on to the next generation. Uh, if we're not careful, uh, who knows what's going to happen in the future uh, if we're going to have courts that are going to be constantly deferring to government officials um, on these very uh, important matters of freedom. And so I, I think I, we owe a debt of gratitude to you guys um, and your team uh, for uh, taking on these cases and also for people like I, I admire very much uh, Premier Brian Peckford, who's willing to speak out. And even though he may be unpopular in some quarters uh, because of, uh, of his stand, but he's speaking uh, as someone with a lot of experience and someone who has thought quite deeply about these things. And so I think that's important. Um, uh, Indeed. If I uh, Tim, just I just want to there, open it. What's that? Sorry? Sorry, Barry. I was just going to jump in there and, and note that uh, Premier Peckford's uh, constitutional challenge litigated by our lawyers is currently uh, pending at the Federal Court of Appeal. And that's, of course, the challenge to the vaccine travel mandate. And that uh, is up for a hearing on an appeal mm -hmm. of a decision, again, uh, not unlike a decision to deny leave, a decision to deem the entire case moot and not hear the arguments in the case. Of course, we recognize that the vaccine uh, requirement for air travel is not imposed right now, but at this very same time, we see Canada even participating in international discussions about imposing similar vaccine requirements on air travel in the future. And so whether or not that case mm. will be argued on a constitutional basis on behalf of Premier Peckford will be heard by the Federal Court of Appeal uh, this fall. Sorry to interrupt. Yeah. Yeah. No. And that's that's very good. And, and I appreciate that. And we want to keep in touch on that one as well. So, Hatim, I just want you to weigh in here uh, on these issues as we've as we've discussed. Yeah, uh, you were talking about the importance of the rule of law. And I think when we think about where where the rule of law exists in our government system and and where it's defended, we would expect the courts to be that bastion of defense of the rule of law. And, and the courts have in the past uh, explained that the courts are to be guardians of our constitution. And I, I think at a minimum that requires the courts to be willing to scrutinize uh, government action after it happens, whereas uh, a really concerning pattern that's happened in some of these uh, COVID cases uh, is one where the court seems to, to doubt its own institutional ability to do that and to to essentially abdicate the role so one of the things we saw in uh the decisions mm. in the the challenges brought by these ontario churches was that the government experts were saying that the lockdowns were necessary and, and justified though not all of them like i was explaining earlier uh and then we had uh, some of their experts and of course our experts saying that they were unjustified and, and that they weren't necessary and what the court should be doing is is looking at this evidence, weighing it, scrutinizing it, and, yes. and ultimately making a finding of fact. But instead, what has happened is the court has uh, like one of the one of the quotes that came out of the one of the decisions in in the lower courts in our case was that 
uh, it, it's not the court's role to be an armchair epidemiologist. And so uh, yes, on that rationale, yes. the the court just didn't weigh the expert evidence. It didn't evaluate them. And it just decided, it just looked at it from the lens of, did the government have a reason to do it? And since they were able to offer experts who were willing to testify that uh, what they did was justified, that was enough for the court to say, okay, I guess it was justified. And that's a real issue there, because if you think about that standard, that the government just has to be able to show an expert to say that this is why they did something. Uh, on that basis, something like uh, you know the internment of uh, Japanese Canadians in World War II could be justified if you could just bring forward mm -hmm. an expert to explain why it was necessary. And so that that's a very dangerous precedent to set. Uh, and it, it it's it's something where the governments did this in the context of uh, uncertainty about the law. You know, the, I, I think a lot of people hoped and expected that the courts would have something to say about this. So now, with these seals of approval from the courts, uh, Canadians should be on guard when the next thing happens, when, when another event happens that the governments can, can use to justify uh, extreme action and, and what they may do in the future. Yeah, uh, I, I think this is absolutely key. And I think our viewers, you need to be very much aware of uh, uh, Hatem's uh, articulation of what the problem is here. I I, I can't help but think, and I, and I mentioned this earlier, but, you know, yeah, not an armchair epidemiologist. And yet Chief Justice of the Supreme Court of Canada was, had no problem being a climatologist in uh, supporting the whole concept that climate change is real. Now, I'm not here to debate that. I'm just saying, how is it that the Supreme Court can make a uh, such a pronouncement taking a side on a uh, scientific debate that is, uh, you know, controversial on however you want to look at it. And of course, he he maintains, of course, there is no controversy because it's it's uh, it's now final. He's he's so uh, decided that took judicial notice, as it were. And yet, with with these other matters, uh, there is no. Uh, uh, really digging in and saying, okay, what's the truth of matter uh, uh, that's here? And, and it also raises the difference between the Supreme Court in the United States and the Supreme Court of Canada when it came to the treatment of churches during the pandemic. And there in the United States, it would seem to me, I, and gentlemen, I don't know if you had a chance to, to look at any what's happened down south of the border, but it seems to me that the court was very uh, robust in its defense of freedom of religion and really holding a higher standard to government uh, to establish a high threshold for government uh, to justify uh, impairing the rights of the religious individuals down in the states am i am i uh, reading that right and uh, have you had a chance to look at that or any any thoughts on the comparison yeah. at all you're very accurate to to say that the united states legal system engaged in a lot more robust protection for uh, taking the example of religious practice during COVID, and i think New York is a prime example where where they tried to have hard gathering number restrictions without capacity restrictions. 
uh, that they allowed for retail settings similar to Ontario. The United States Supreme Court said, you can't be doing that. If you have a cathedral that seats 2,000 people, we want to see your capacity restriction just like you have it for the, the big box store down the street. And so that rationale mm. led to many government COVID restrictions, whether it was California, whether it was New York or other places being struck down. And, and many of those were struck down on injunctive relief cases. Uh, in mm. Canada, we had injunctions being issued against churches preemptorily uh, for closing their exercise of constitutional rights. In Alberta, we saw injunctions being utilized as a justification for arresting pastors. Thankfully, in British Columbia, we were able to resist an injunction application so that our pastors did not get arrested and their parishioners get arrested on the way to church. But, but we, we did see quite a significant difference in how the judicial system uh, between Canada and the United States were uh, interacting with, with COVID and the constitutional rights uh, being protected there. And so, you know, there, there's a significant uh, legal philosophy difference. There may just be yep. a fundamental question in Canadians' minds about the value of gathering for worship. It, we, we've seemed to have lost the concept that the principle propounded in the charter is worth defending, even if not every Canadian participates in it. Not every Canadian needs to participate in a peaceful protest in order to recognize the value of peaceful assembly. But many Canadians seem to have lost the, uh, the understanding of the protection for and the need for a protection for conscience and religion. And, and it seems that our courts are correspondingly are giving it very little value in the legal analysis that they're undertaking. And, and this, this strikes me as, as a problem for the future of individuals to whom um, Justice uh, Ivan Rand had stated, from which we as uh, the First Freedoms Foundation get our name, where he talked about the original freedoms, which was uh, freedom of religion, he made mention as one of those original freedoms. And there is a... Uh, there, there seems to be a cultural difference between the United States and Canada with respect to how the courts are going to respect religious freedom. Uh, in the United States, very robust. In Canada, not so much. And during the uh, COVID uh, pandemic, we had a rash of all kinds of attacks against churches uh, themselves. Churches literally burnt to the ground. And you know, very little political ramifications or, I, I, I mean, help me if I'm wrong, but I, I don't even remember there's a whole lot of prosecutions made against individuals who vandalize or they were ever found or whatever. But there was this, this sense of, of a very, how can I say, uh, lack of interest, I should say, when it came to uh, protecting religious individuals, religious communities in Canada uh, during this era. And it, it almost it almost seems to me that we're seeing that reflected in the institutions of government. I think it's accurate to to often note that uh, there whether it's cause or correlation, our courts 
do not infrequently reflect the values of society at large. And I think mm. there may be some interplay there. I do think that uh, our, our justice system also tends to reflect the values of the society at large, whether that's the prosecution and the, the resources into investigations, et cetera, which to me is quite concerning because when you see the amount of legal resources that are continuing to be poured into the prosecution of churches to this day amidst massive crisis of crime and drug deaths on a, a massive, unprecedented scale, um, the questions that come to my mind are, are certainly, what does our society value? And is our society mm. valuing the prosecution of pastors who held safe, albeit non-compliant worship services in accordance with the dictates of their faith? Is that more valuable to society to prosecute those individuals than it is to utilize the public resources uh, to pursue the pressing needs of the current situations and crises? Uh, those are questions that arise in my mind, and mm. I, I have yet to find a satisfactory answer to the, them. Yeah, I know it's uh, it raises a lot of questions, and and it raises a lot of uh, concern in my mind going forward. And it's something that uh, I'd encourage our viewers to pay attention, because uh, this is not going away. This is something that we see endemic. It's a uh, systemic uh, issue, it seems, and, and we need to be vigilant. You know, freedom, uh, you know, uh, our freedoms require eternal vigilance, as uh, was once said by an Irish uh, politician some years ago, and I think it's very much applicable today. Gentlemen, I want to thank you so much for being with me here on this uh, Freedom Feature, talking about these issues. These are issues that we want to keep, keep watching. I just wonder if... Uh, Hatim, if you want to just uh, share with us what you see going forward, uh, just a few few moments, uh, what you see going forward that our audience ought to be paying attention to with these cases that are oncoming. Like Marty was pointing out, there is this uh, connection between the culture and the courts. And I think uh, there's a cultural difference, not only between Canada and America, but Canada and Canada, but 15 years ago, for example, or, or going farther back. Mm. So uh, earlier you referenced Justice Rand, and we, we see from the, the court, before we ever had a charter, uh, judges like Rand went to great analytical lengths to explain why actually there were, uh, we had freedoms and we had a right to freedom of expression, for example, even when it had not yet been codified. Uh, and then going into the era of the charter, we, we see very robust defenses and a big emphasis on uh, the government Early being on. put to the test of demonstrable justification. Uh, but as over the last uh, two decades, 15 years, last decade especially, uh, that's been watered down. And, the, and the, the legal tests that form the bulwark against government infringements have been continually watered down uh, to the point now where the courts go to uh, also great lengths, but to justify why uh, infringements on freedom aren't that serious or uh, even though the evidence may not be perfect are actually justified 
And uh, I think what this reflects is a lack of serious care and defense and value of, of just the concept of freedom and the value of uh, an individual being left alone by, by the government. And so I think uh, what Canadians should be on the lookout for going forward are, uh, I mean, just broadly, the, the value of freedom as it as it exists in our culture amongst us just as people, but especially amongst the judiciary. Uh, and then the way that's playing out in things like these these tests that the government is supposed to have to meet and that are supposed to be onerous and that the government has to marshal evidence to show uh, being being watered down and being made uh, almost perfunctory. Uh, and so I, mm -hmm. I think people should pay specific attention to to that defense against uh, infringements starting to fall apart. Wow. Yeah. Well, gentlemen, uh, this has been a very sober conversation, and it's certainly one that we want to be able to continue, but I see that our time has definitely run out. I'm just wondering, um, either of you or both of you would like to have a final statement uh, that you'd like to share with the audience, and can you also let everyone know where they can reach you and find out more about the work, the great work that you and the Justice Center for Constitutional Freedom are engaged in? Well, Barry, I would add that, you know, there have been dark times in history uh, when freedoms have been bleak. Uh, you've referenced the United States uh, Supreme Court. There's been dark times there where the judiciary mm -hmm. got off the rails and and did not defend the rights and liberty of all Americans. And I uh, think that, you know, we may right now be in a period of time where there is a lack of judicial uh, protection and robust consideration and defense of Canadians' freedoms. Uh, that, however, only encourages us at the Justice Centre team to, to work all the harder to, to bring these issues both to the minds of Canadians and to the courts and to not let the candle of freedom flicker out in the wind here. Mm. Uh, Canada is a free country. It's worth fighting for. Uh, Canadians uh, need to be uh, educated. Many are uh, recognizing how important their freedoms are. I think if you went back 10 years, most Canadians wouldn't even know the Canadian Charter of Rights and Freedoms or value uh, much of its protections uh, as a particular legal issue. Now that's become much more to the forefront of Canadians' minds. I think that conversation mm. needs to be carried out societally, politically, and of course, uh, judicially as well. We'll keep on that fight at the JCCF. Uh, and so uh, continue to uh, follow jccf.ca. You can sign up for justice updates there on the cases that the legal network are doing. And we'll keep this fight going in the courts and look forward to uh, seeing decisions uh, I think hopefully increasingly recognize the value of, of principles such as freedom of expression, uh, freedom of conscience and religion, and, and, and really the whole basic right to liberty, life and security of the person that our charter does guarantee. And so those are, those are rights that are continuing, whether it's in the COVID context or others, uh, to be litigated across the country. And we appreciate uh, Canadians supporting our work there at jccf.ca. Okay. Hatim, do you want anything to say? You have anything to say? or I'll just tack on to that and encourage uh, people to visit jccf.ca if they'd like to support the work that we're doing.
Okay, great. Well, gentlemen, thanks again. And I want to thank you, our listeners, for uh, spending time with us as we've talked about these cases. While it may be that you have a sense of, uh, of a sense of fear or a sense of loss with respect to freedom in this country, especially those of you who are concerned about religious freedom, freedom of conscience. But uh, as Marty and as Hatim and others have talked and been involved in the fight. Uh, we want to continue to lift up their hands and support them, and I encourage you to do, do that. Uh, go to jccf.ca. Also encourage you to go to ourfirstfreedoms.ca, sign up for our newsletter. And you may agree or disagree with the opinions that are expressed by my guests or by myself on this program. But we want you to understand that here on Freedom Feature, we are concerned about open, honest, and transparent dialogue. And so until next time, I'm Barry Bussey. The fight for freedom consists not only in the legal battles in court, but also in the battle of ideas at the universities and in the media. It takes time effort and money to keep on top of the debates for freedom. Your donation allows us to keep fighting for all Canadians. Firstfreedoms.ca